Hi, this is the podcast recording of Generations Home Church with Noah Johnson. Enjoy. Let's open up to Exodus. Yeah. And we will jump in. Um, I know we started, um, when we first started this, we, we did a couple sermons or teachings just on kind of we talked about a couple things. We talked about um, repentance, and we talked about prayer, and we talked about revival. And then we jumped into uh, Genesis, and we wanted to do kind of a quick survey of the Old Testament. Um, but as I'm getting to Exodus, what I'm kind of realizing is I don't think we're going to be able to go that quick. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of reasons, but mostly because I think that probably... Um, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, is maybe the most confusing part of the whole Bible to us as Christians. We're so far removed from it, um, particularly as we pass through Genesis and we get about halfway through Exodus. There tends to be, well, not tends to be, there are a lot of laws that are laid out. And I think the, the, that whole idea tends to be very confusing to Christians um, where those where those apply to us, what those mean to us, and what that kind of tells us about who the Lord is. And I think those things can become very um, confusing and odd to Christians. And so instead of trying to quickly run through um, the rest of the Pentateuch, I think it would probably serve us well if we slow down there. Genesis has a lot of concepts and it's so much narrative that we can we could jump through to the major points, which we did. But I feel like as we're getting into Exodus, um, we're going to, I think we're just going to slow down and I'm going to go a lot slower and we're going to go, we're going to try and go as much as we can verse by verse. Um, so anyway, I know that last week we kind of talked about how there's several themes in Exodus that, that really jump out to you in the beginning of it. And we talked about last week that this was the beginning of the beginning of the end of the exile. So we talked about that from the beginning of creation, we were on this, on this mountaintop in the Garden of Eden, uh, in God's presence, literally living with him in the temple with his divine counsel, the divine beings that dwell in God's presence, and how through our sin, we were exiled out of the garden. Then as we saw that as Abel's, or I'm sorry, Abel was killed by Cain, Cain was further exiled. And we just see this continual exile further from God's presence all the way through Genesis. And we talked about how really God's purpose through the entirety of scripture and his purpose in our very lives and every human life is to take us back to that mountain home where we were with him. And we've talked about several times that that's what we see in Revelation. We are on Mount Zion. There is a new city there that we live with him called the New Jerusalem. And the temple of God is there and we are in his presence and everything is good, just as it was in the garden. And so there's all these themes that that kind of jump out in Exodus where it's this new thing that's starting. We've seen this constant pain and death and exile. And now we're seeing light start to break through. And it's not going to be the full end of our exile. As we talked about last week, we as Christians are still living and walking as sojourners in this semi-exile, even though we are now citizens of heaven and we are God's family. 
So the other themes that I kind of want to point out is this is the first time in the Bible where the ideas of a redeemer, a savior, a deliverer are brought forth. And from there, this becomes a humongous idea about who God is, that he is this, this deliverer, this savior, this one that's going to come and take us out of slavery. And that theme will be, it will be expounded upon and built upon through the rest of scripture. And obviously we see in Jesus, the fulfillment of that. We are fully saved from our exile. We are fully uh, saved from the slavery that we are in to sin. And we are brought out of this world. The Bible talks about us being, as, as we come to Christ, we are literally translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so we're going to start to see those themes in Exodus. And it's the first place also where we see the, the idea of a nation. God had promised Abraham a nation, and we see that he had kind of built this people or this family, but we have yet to see this nation. And so Exodus will be the beginning of the birth of this nation Israel, a nation which should be really important to us because we're told in Romans that as believers in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, we are grafted into that nation. So they, it's not like they cease being his family. It's that we get to join in all of their blessings. So with all of those kind of ideas out there, I want to say one more thing and then we'll jump right into Exodus. I want to say this. Um, even last week, mom, you brought up the ideas of some of the laws and how confusing they seem or bizarre. Sometimes even they seem uh, really punitive as we get into um, as we get further into the Pentateuch. And we even talked a little bit about, well, what's that old covenant versus new covenant? Like were they in the old Testament, were they saved by keeping the law? And what I want to point out is a couple of things. One, Abraham, it says was, it was, he was accounted as righteous, not because of what he had done, but because he believed the Lord's promises. And what I want to point out to you guys right now is this God's promise to Israel is that he, they would go and be a, uh, a slave people in a foreign land for 400 years, and then that he would come and rescue them. He, he's told this to Abraham. At this point, there is no law. There is one single thing that the Israelites are supposed to do in regards to a, a tradition or a law to keep, and that's circumcision. That is it. So what I want to convey, convey to you guys is the saving act of God, the first act of him redeeming his people is an act of grace. It is not because they are more righteous. In fact, as we get further into the Pentateuch, the Lord will actually say this to the people. You think, I, you think I'm calling you out to be mine because you're more special or you're better or you're stronger or you're bigger? No, you're nothing. I'm doing this for my namesake, for my honor, for my glory. And because I loved your father, Abraham, that's it. And so what I want to convey to you guys is we so often get things twisted. And yet here we are, the beginning of a birth of a nation, the beginning of the exile ending, the beginning of them being pulled out of slavery. And it has nothing to do with law keeping. It has nothing to do with them keeping the law. In fact, the law hasn't even been given yet. It won't be until after they are rescued, saved from slavery, redeemed, bought back by the Lord, brought through the Red Sea, completely separated from Egypt. Then he gives them the law to live in his presence. So I just, I want to point that out before we jump in. So let's, let's jump into Exodus uh, chapter one. 
Verse seven, I think I mentioned this a little bit last week, um, but then we went into the whole talk about uh, the exile ending. But I'm sorry, we'll start at, we'll start at verse one. And um, would it be better for you guys if we read through the chunk we're going to go through from beginning to end first and then went down and broke it, broke it out? Or would you guys prefer if we, I break it out as I read? Is there choice? Yeah, read the whole chunk first and then go back. We'll do that. <laughs> okay, that's what we'll do. Okay. Oh. The beard. He's got that. He's kind of got that Moses beard. Oh, okay. <laughs> Bellwether for the people. Wow. Okay. All right, we'll just start next to this one then, and we'll go through two. Um, these are the names of the sons of Israel. Actually, I'm going to skip all that. Sorry. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to skip down to verse six, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied and became extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them and a new King who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. And he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar. And in all kinds of field work, they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose names was Shipra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God. It did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous. And since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman, and the woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. And she placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. And Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying, and she felt sorry for him. 
and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. And looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. And the next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. And he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. And when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage and she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned because of the di their difficult labor and they cried out and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the Israelites and God knew. Okay, we will end right there and we will kind of go back. Um, as you see, the beginning of this is, it's pretty action packed. A ton happens. Um, when we get into chapter three, when Moses is actually called to go back to the people, he's 80 years old. So in the span of a couple chapters, we've gone through the birth of Moses all the way to his 80th year. So I want to stop, uh, real quick in Exodus one, seven. If somebody has the opportunity and would be willing to open to Genesis one twenty eight. And somebody else, Genesis 9-1. Okay. Okay. I just want to look at, at verse 7 real quick. It says, But the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, and multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. Now, two times previously in Genesis, we have seen this exact command to God's people. Of course, in Genesis, God's people was everyone. It wasn't just a specific group. It was everyone. And we see that in Genesis one uh, twenty-eight, if you will read that, Mom. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every That's living good. thing. That's good. Just right there. I just wanted to go to that part. That's the first command. 
be fruitful and multiply. Um, after the flood, again, Noah's told a similar thing. Genesis 9-1. Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, so there's already this little hint that's being given to us that Israel is going to be the one who actually obeys God's command. Now, it's not like they did something special. God actually brought it about in them. He's the one who's making the, the wombs of the Israelite women multiply. But yet we see already there's kind of this hint that the things that he's called the people of the world to do over and over, which they have disobeyed, now Israel is starting to fulfill that. And so we're starting to see kind of just this hint that Israel is going to be these people. If you remember back in Genesis, and I don't have the exact scripture notation, but um, the Lord said to Abraham, I have called Abraham so that he might teach his children after him to obey me and walk in righteousness and ju justice. And so there's this idea already that they are going to fulfill God's call for them, which no one else has done to this point. As we go down further, uh, we're going to see something really, really interesting. It says, uh, verse 11 says, so we see that the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites are there and the king is getting um, scared that the Israelites are too numerous. So he says, let's start kind of oppressing them. And the way they oppress them is they're in slavery, they're in bondage, but he says, let's make it extremely rough on them. And verse 11 says this. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. And verse 12 says this, But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Now, what's fascinating about this is we're going to start to see that this is almost like a trend. Whenever we see in the Bible that there is a oppression coming on the people of God, they will actually, as they try and stamp them out, it's almost like kicking a fire. It will spread further. Now, there are times in the Bible where we see that the Lord actually brings oppression or judgment on his people. We see that with the Assyrians. We see that with the Babylonians. And so this is really the Lord using a foreign nation as a weapon, as a club to chastise his people for living in rebellion. But when that is not the case and when it's just humans oppressing his people what we will see is when that happens oftentimes what happens is they they don't actually succeed in tamping down their numbers but the exact opposite happens um and so i want to open real quick to john if somebody would open to john 12 24 and i will open to acts 8 1 through 4 if somebody would read john 12 24 this seems to be almost a a law that the Lord has written in the way that the world works. So if anybody could... 1224? 1224? Does somebody have it? Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Katie. Just, just 24? I think it's just 24, yeah. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus even uses this as a spiritual illustration and says about himself. Look, I'm going to die. But when I die, what's actually going to come from that is way more fruit. And so what we see is whenever, uh, whenever the forces that are aligned against the Lord begin to hurt, crush, or destroy his people, what really ends up happening is a multiplication. 
As we look at the early church, we're going to see a very similar thing. In Acts 8, 1 through 4, um, the church has begun to multiply, and it's begun to multiply so much that there is now a concerted effort on the part of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, to get rid of them. And so they, much like Pharaoh, have the same mind. How can we get rid of them? Let's, let's oppress them. Let's destroy them. And, and we'll see what the result is. It says here in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 of Acts, it says, Saul agreed with putting him to death. That's talking about Stephan. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen or Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. So they were scattered. Oh, I'm sorry. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Okay, so we're going to see that this, this awesome thing's hap- this awesome thing's going to happen, and Paul is almost going to be like Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the Bible says, ends up being raised up, even though the Lord knows he's going to harden his heart. God raises him up to show himself powerful and to show his glory in Pharaoh. And yet Pharaoh continues to oppress his people, but the more he oppresses, the more he tries to stamp out that fire, the more sparks fly out and the people multiply. Here we see the chief persecutor is a guy named Saul. And the more he tries to stamp out this flame, what happens? Those embers are spread out and it says they fled, but as they fled, they went out preaching the gospel. And what we're gonna see from here, here on in Acts and in the history of of the church is, The church, which started as a small Jewish sect in Jerusalem, now spreads like a wildfire throughout the entire Roman Empire. And the guy who is doing the most severe persecution, just like Pharaoh, this guy named Saul, is actually going to be raised up for God's glory as well. And he's going to be flipped. God's going to turn him. He's going to go into the enemy camp and he's going to take their best spy and he's going to turn him and make him a a spy for for the kingdom. And so what what we see with Saul, what happens later is he's renamed Paul and he becomes this great evangelist, not to the people that he cares the most about, not to the Jewish people, as he is part of the Sanhedrin, as he is this, um, really this Israelite supremacist that thinks that only the Jews should have uh, the glory of God. Only the Jews are able to come close to God. In fact, he becomes the opposite of that. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what we see is when the Lord is with his people, no matter what man does against them, it will not succeed. And in fact, what happens over and over is as it talks about in Romans 8, God turns that thing, whatever it is, and he makes it for good for his people. All right, as we continue on in Exodus, and I just, the reason I want to point these things out is I want you guys to start to see these themes. These are things that are carried through the whole Bible. And so when we as Christians living in 2020 in America, we're so far removed from everything that was life back then. It's easy for us to disconnect and we think, well, this is just what our faith is about is, is about Jesus. And that's true. But who is Jesus? He was a Jewish man. 
He was the Messiah of the Jews, the one that had been promised all the way through the Jewish scriptures, all the way back to Genesis 3, where we looked about, uh, or where we looked at this, this one that would crush the head of the serpent. So all the way back to Genesis 3, when, the, when uh, God's people are first cast out of the garden, and then through the remainder of scripture, which is Jewish scripture, what we see is there's this one that's promised, this deliverer. There's that old uh, worship song, my deliverer is coming. There's this one that's constantly promised that they're waiting for. And so what we want to do is we want to marry those things together so we can have a fuller understanding of who we are, who the Lord is, and what he requires of us. And what we're going to see is so much of what's in Exodus and the rest of the Bible is is really applicable to us. These people stood fast and the Lord blessed them because of that. And he will do the same with us. All right. As we get further down into verse 14, it says, I shall start in verse 13. It says, They worked the Israelites ruthlessly, and they made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar. And I want to stop right there because I think this part is fascinating. This is the last place in the Bible, is Exodus, where we're going to hear about bricks. And you might be like, who cares? That's, that doesn't mean anything to me. But if we look back real quick, where was the first place that we saw bricks? In Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, it says, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to each other, they didn't say to each other, let's spread out across the whole earth as the Lord told us and subdue it. What they said to each other is, let's not spread out anywhere. Let's stay right here. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. And they used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. This idea of brick and mortar being used to build a tower up to the heavens, literally, as we talked about, I think it was either Ugaritic or Akkadian, that the name Babel meant the gateway to the gods. So they were building a gateway to the gods. And God did not like what they were doing. We saw this. And this was kind of the final rebellion of humanity as a whole. And what did he do? It came down and confused their languages. So humanity was now severed. It was shattered. It was broken apart. And he spread them out all over. And they went and spread out to different lands according to the languages of those who spoke the same language. He confused their language. We saw, we talked about this was kind of the final um, rebellion that we see in Genesis where man and the the these evil spiritual beings that we saw in Genesis 3, the serpent that we saw later in Genesis 6, these beings that were creating these uh, half-breeds named Nephilim. And now we kind of see this final alliance for rebellion. And what are they using? They're using brick and mortar. And here is the last place we're going to see this together. So the Israelites are actually still being oppressed by this demonic thing, whatever it was that first inspired humanity to rebel against God and build this, this tower. And I think really the writers of the Bible would want us to look back at that. They know exactly what they're doing as they're, as they're writing this out. As the Spirit of God is leading them to write this, they know what they're writing. And this is the last place. There's only one other, uh, two other places in the Bible where you're even going to see the word brick. And it's in Isaiah, and he talks about when God destroys Israel, how the bricks are falling down, but the Israelites say, no, we will rebuild the stone. So even there, there's this idea of rebellion against God. And what we're seeing is the rebellious 
those who are working in the brick and mortar are oppressing the people of God here. But this will be the last time we'll see it. And so it's kind of this final breaking out. Remember, he told after, right after Genesis 11, we see that God calls out Abraham. So he says, hey, I'm dividing the nations out. They're going to be according to their languages. And we talked about in, uh, in Deuteronomy 32 that he divided out the nations to the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, this divine council that he divided each nation under a member of that divine council, a member of the sons of God, these angelic beings, whatever you want to call them. And, but he said, I'm going to take one nation for myself. And he said he took Israel as his portion. And so as we're going through it, we're seeing is this is going to be the final break of Israel being connected to the nations. From here forward, they are their own separate thing. It's the birth of a nation and it's the nation of Yahweh. It's his people. And so what's fascinating is if we skip over to chapter two and verse three, after Moses' Moses's mom had seen how beautiful he was, and decided to hide him for three months. She came to the point where she could hide him no longer and, and listen to what it says. But when she could no longer hide him, she got papyrus ba a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch and placed it in the river. It's the final time that we're gonna see this idea of the brick and mortar. And what does she do? She turns one of those elements for good and she actually uses the mortar to be the deliverance of her son who will end up being the savior of the nation. So she takes this thing that they have been oppressed in, making bricks, making mortar, building, and she takes that element, that mortar, she takes it, she grabs some out, that asphalt, it was probably tar or something, and she coats this basket so that it will float, so that the son that she loves will not perish in the Nile, but perhaps perhaps something will happen and he'll survive. And sure enough, by God's providence and her little bit of faith of putting this baby in this basket and putting it in the Nile, it floats down to Pharaoh's daughter. And that's it. That's the last time we hear brick and mortar and that break is made. And the final thing that the mortar is used for is not rebellion, but it's used for salvation of Moses, who would be the savior of his people, though his people didn't even know it and they reject him. All right. I want to uh, read verses uh, 15 through 22 of the first chapter. It says this uh, The king of Egypt said to the midwives, uh, uh, Exodus 1 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it is a daughter, she may live. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned them, the midwives, and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. What I want to point out to you guys here is in the first two chapters of Exodus, the birth of a nation, the beginning of the end of the exile, the first time we talk about the ideas of God redeeming and saving and buying back his people, women over and over in the first two chapters are the heroes and they stand up against incredible odds over and over. First, we see these midwives standing up against the power of the nation, Pharaoh himself, lying to him and making sure that they do what is right, no matter what, even if it costs them. But it doesn't end up costing them because the Lord blesses them. Later, we see Moses's mother disobeying the command of the king and not throwing her son into the Nile, but hiding him for three months. And then as he is put into the Nile, who do we see but his sister, Miriam, following the basket down to the river, following as it flows through the reeds. And who does it come to? A little slave girl, a Pharaoh's daughter. And what we hear of Pharaoh's daughter is she has pity on the baby boy. She knows her dad's command. She knows these guys aren't supposed to live. She could have let that thing continue down the Nile until some crocodile saw it and ate it up, but she didn't. She took the boy and she made it hers. And not only that, but God allowed by his providence and goodness for Moses's own mother to be the one that got to raise him, at least until he was weaned. God is so good. He is so gracious. And oftentimes we hear like, oh, there's no, we don't see many female heroes in the Bible. No. The entire birth of the nation was through these heroic acts of these women. And I just want to stop for a second and think about these two women. We don't know a whole lot about them. We don't know. Um, it, I shouldn't say we don't know. I don't know. There may be scholars out there that do know. I don't know if they're Hebrew women that are there birthing the, you know, our midwives for the Hebrews, or if they're really Egyptian women that are there being midwives. I'm not really sure. And maybe, maybe there's a language expert out there. I'm sure there is that knows. But the point that I want to, I want to emphasize here is. I would think that they were Egyptian, just a comment, because they also were present at the Egyptian births because they tell them they're not like the Egyptian women, and I would doubt that the Egyptian women would want Hebrew women delivering their babies. Yeah, that might be the case. That may totally be the case. Um, but I want to read just a couple other places in the Bible to kind of f f flesh out this idea of, gosh, it's so easy for us in our lives to fear people rather than God. And we know so much more about the character of God than these women did. What do they know about the Lord? Not a lot. I mean, even if they knew all the stories of what the Lord had done in appearing to Abraham and to Jacob and to Isaac and to Joseph, they don't know that much about him. And yet they fear him rather than the king. And they're actually summoned into the king's presence. Talk about a fearful thing. Talk about something that would make your knees buckle. You are brought before someone. There is no court. There is no appealing to someone for justice. You are standing before the one who holds life and death in his hands. And if he doesn't like your answer, you're dead. And maybe your whole family's dead. And they, they don't tremble. They don't pull back. They don't let cowardice or fear overcome them. It rather, they let the fear of God control their actions. Um, 
if somebody would be willing to open to Proverbs 29, 25, somebody else, Acts 5, 29, um, somebody else, Matthew 10, 28, and I will read from Daniel 3. Uh, whoever's got Proverbs, if you would read that. Proverbs 29, 25, I believe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Just that verse. Yeah, just that verse. I mean, we get we have Proverbs. These women didn't have that. We have the words of God telling us things like this, and yet we see this fulfilled in them. Who knows that Solomon, as he was writing this, wasn't even thinking of these women. They disobey the king. They fear God. And what happens? God is good to them and he blesses them with families. They save the families of the Hebrews. God blesses these women with families. In my translation, it says establish their households, mm. which just seems even more powerful to me. Yeah, totally. You know, like more far reaching and mm -hmm. generational. Um, does somebody have Acts 529? Yeah. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Okay, so uh, Peter and John had been going up to the temple to worship the Lord in Acts, and they healed this man at the gate beautiful, and they're called before the Jewish leaders and told to quit preaching in the name of Jesus. And they're basically like, you guys do whatever you think's right. This is what we think. We think it's better to fear God rather than man, so we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, Matthew 10, 28. Anybody? I will. Okay. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Mm. Okay. Uh that's a, maybe none of you guys have this, but when I was a, a new Christian, I was reading through the Bible. I remember reading that and being like, yeah, you better be afraid of the devil. And that's really not talking about the devil at all. <laughs> that's talking about God. Um, Jesus, the thing I love about Jesus, the thing that I think is ironic as we have become a very New Testament centered church and we have become a very... Um, non-offensive church and tolerant church. That's how the church in the West has become. How can we be as relevant as possible? And typically what that means is how can we steer clear of things that might offend people who don't know the Lord? Um, I love when I actually read Jesus. You literally never see him do that ever. He always brings it so hard. Like he just brings the hammer every time. He's like, actually don't fear those people at all. But you know who you should fear? The one who can kill your body. And then after your body's dead, he can take your soul and throw that into hell too. It's like, okay. Um, but that is the God that we serve. And, and Jesus is the perfect image of that God because he is him. And he never holds back those things. What I always find funny is... Um, we will talk about, oh, Jesus heals this person. He heals that person. And we want to talk about all the things that everyone in the world at large would agree. What a great thing by Jesus. But almost without exception, almost every single time after he does it, he stops the person before they leave and says, hey, don't go and sin anymore. Something worse than this is going to happen to you. Some of these people have been crippled their whole life. What possibly worse thing could happen to them? Like you've been sitting at a place begging. Like, I don't know how many of you guys have visited other countries, but when you see uh, 
kids with like polio and stuff in places like India, they're, they've, they're begging and they're on these little carts with wheels. Like that's what they've been doing their entire life. They don't have what we have in this country. They didn't have those things back then. That's those people, that was their entire existence was begging, hum, being completely humbled their whole life, having nothing, having no dreams, having nothing. How do I live this day? That's it. Now, if they had parents that loved them, those parents would take care of them for as long as they could till they died. But they were basically at the mercy of the community to keep them alive. They had nothing. And Jesus would heal one of these people. And then before they would leave, he would be sure to speak to their heart, not their body that was, had been mangled and crippled. He would speak to their soul and say, just be sure that you don't leave now and forget God. Be sure that you don't go now and live in sin because there is something so much worse than the 60, 70, 80, 100 years of being crippled on their, this earth. There is an eternity apart from God that awaits those who reject the salvation of his son. Be sure that when you leave, you don't go and jump into something worse than this. But we don't preach that very often. <laughs> and we should, because that is what we're called to preach. We're called to preach the truth of the word of God over and over and over, no matter what, just like these women did when they stood by and did what was right, no matter what. Now, the most inspiring or the one that really gets me going when it comes to these kinds of stories or retelling in the Bible is Daniel 3. I love this story. I come back to it all the time. Um, we will start in verse uh, 13. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream. And in this dream, he's seen the statue. There's a head of gold and a chest of silver and arms of iron or bronze. I can't remember how the whole dream goes, but basically from the head down, the, this statue has more and more worthless metals until at the feet, what it's made of is clay. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. Daniel tells him the meaning of the dream. And right after that, what we see in this scene is Nebuchadnezzar goes out and makes a statue of himself that is all gold. In other words, you may say, God in heaven, that my kingdom will come to an end. And after that, a less powerful kingdom and then a less and a less. What I say is the whole thing is gold. I, my kingdom's never going to end. And all the people are brought out to this giant statue to bow before and worship it as a god. But there's these three Hebrew boys. And it says this. Um, we'll start, actually, you know what? We'll start in verse 11. It says, whoever does not fall down and worship, speaking of this, this statue, will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And there are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So here's these guys. Every time the music would play, everyone would bow down, except these three, basically, governors. And they would stand there. And they're slaves. They're probably eunuchs, even. There are these guys that have been raised, they're Jewish men, but they've been raised with Daniel in Babylon and they won't, they won't bow down. And so now these other officials are coming to Nebuchadnezzar and tattling on them. Like basically like, we've done this a couple times and every time these guys aren't bowing. And you've said if, they, if someone doesn't bow, they're going to be thrown into the furnace. It says this, 
Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue from my power? <laughs> you shall see. That, that was a good question. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. In other words, he's, he, he likes them. He's like, I'm going to give you guys, anybody else, you just already be dead. I'm going to give you guys one more time, one more chance. So just when we play the music, just do what you're supposed to do, okay? And they answer him and say, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. My gosh, these guys. Talk about ballsy. Can you imagine? This guy is, Nebuchadnezzar is so powerful. And they don't even, he gives them this gracious kind of moment. Like, I'm going to give you one more chance of music to play. They're like, no, you don't. We don't, we're not even going to answer that. We don't even play the music. We're not bowing down. Um, our God, if he exists, he can rescue us from whatever fire you have. And he can rescue us from you. You think you're greater than him? You're not. So do your worst because even if he doesn't rescue us, we're still not going to obey you. It is better to obey God than to fear man. For the fear of man is a snare. Gosh. And we all, I, I, I'm assuming we all know the story. They get thrown into the fire. None of them burn. Not only do they not burn, the only thing that does burn are the ropes that have bind them, have bound them. And as everyone looks into the fire, not only are the guards who threw them in die, but not only do the three... Hebrew boys or men at this point, are, not only are they standing walking around in the fire, but they say, I see another one walking around with them. Was there not only three? Because I see four and one of them looks like a son of man. What? If that's not encouraging, and nothing is. <laughs> it's just, think about what the Bible says about fire. When, when Moses meets the Lord for the first time, says the angel of the Lord is in a flaming fire in a bush, and yet the bush is not consumed. And here we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're in the flame of fire, and yet they are not consumed. Our God is a consuming fire, and his fire goes before him, and it burns up all his enemies. It says they are like chaff. It burns so quickly. You barely can even see the chaff burn before this maelstrom of fire hits it. And yet his people, that fire just refines them and makes them better and better and more and more pure. All because we do not give in to the fear of man, but we fear God. And like that didn't even have to be in there. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what time do we have? Where are we? Good time. Eleven thirty-five. All right. Um, okay. I had some other stuff I want to get to. We will do that next week. Let's end there. Um, I just want to encourage you guys. The Lord is awesome. The more that we pour into his word, the more that we see who he is, the more that I, I feel like we become in awe of him. And as we look at him, he changes us into his image as we behold his face. And so I just want to encourage you guys that, gosh, the Lord loves you guys. And he loves this whole world. Let us be those who do not shrink back from not only living right, but from spreading his message as the early church did. When they, were, when, they were, when they fled and they went out, it said they preached the word as they went. You know, it's easy for us in our culture especially to, to fear people because as soon as you start sharing that with them, there is this, they're going to cast you out sometimes. They're going to call you bigots or they're going to call you small-minded. But who cares? We've been commanded to do what is right and let everything else fall where it will, just like those Hebrew boys did. You know what? At the end of the day, maybe we die in this fire, but we're not going to bow before you. We know our God's able to save us. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. That's up to him. But we will not serve your gods. We will serve the living God. Lord, I thank you that you are good, that you are righteous, that you are kind and gracious, and that you are powerful, so powerful that you can save us from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar and any other power that comes against us. And you know what, Lord? Just like those Hebrew, Hebrew men said, even if we die, we still will not serve this, this statue. We still will not serve these false gods. Let us be of that mind, Lord, because even if we die, our death is a momentary thing. It has been appointed unto mankind once to die and then comes the judgment. But we already know, Lord, our judgment as the sons and daughters of God. We know that our judgment was laid on Jesus Christ. We know that our bodies, these lowly bodies that we now have, will be resurrected into glorious bodies. And we know that we will rule and reign with you forever and ever. Not 10,000 years, not a million years, infinity beyond, as Buzz Lightyear would say, apparently. <laughs> but Lord, let, let us be reminded of that and let us encourage one another until the day of your appearing to stand fast and to walk with you no matter what. We pray for our nation, Lord as it continues to fall apart and become more and more wicked. And it's unraveling, not because of one man in the presidency, not because of anyone that came before him. Our country is unraveling because of sin, Lord. Sin is an approach, uh, a reproach to any people. But blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Lord, we have left you over and over and over in our hearts. 
And are we better than Israel, your own nation whom you judged when they turned from you? And if you choose to judge us, Lord, and if you choose to have this be the time where we reap what we have sown as a nation, then I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious unto us, your children, and that we would stand as lights in this nation, and that we would call our countrymen and women to repentance, and that we would not fear except to fear you. So give us your feeble, weak, little sheep. Give us strength. Give us endurance. Give us compassion. Conform us into the image of your Son, that we might be bearers of your image to this dying world, and that they might see you and hear you through our actions and through our words, and that they might somehow grope for you and find you and be granted repentance and salvation, Lord. Let us be those people. We know in us we have no power. We have nothing to give you other than our very selves. And so we give ourselves to you. We ask that you would make us the men and women that you would have us to be by your Holy Spirit, by the working of your power, because we know that we have no well to draw from within us. But if we draw from you, Lord, the giver of life, you can give us that living water. Give us that living water. Let it pour out of us. Forgive us today, Lord. I just ask that each one of us would think about the sins this week, this month, this year, this, and even in our lifetime that we have yet to repent of. I ask right now, Lord, that you would reveal those things to us. That you would forgive us of those sins and that you would lead us in the way everlasting. We put our trust in you, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus, by whom we were saved. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, by whom we are being sanctified daily. We thank you, Father, that your kingdom is coming and one day will dwell upon this earth and we will dwell with you. You are good. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we take communion, I want to read one more scripture that I always love. Uh, Esther 4, verse 12 is where I'll start. And then they told Mordecai that Esther had said, sorry, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Deliverance will rise up for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther replied, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days and nights. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him to do. Mm -hmm. That's good. Are we taking communion? Yeah, I put it up. Yep, it's right here.